And by doing that, we build resilience in order to help us face the saber tooth. And if we can do that, then I think we realize that it's not as bad as we think it is. Are you looking to pursue excellence and take your success to the next level? You're in the right place. Welcome to Excellence Mindset with your host, Ryan James Miller. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Excellence Mindset Podcast. Thanks for taking some time to join me today. I am looking forward to the guests that I have on the other end of the line, and we uh, above or uh, along with many other things that we're going to talk about today, I cannot wait to dig into the idea of taming a saber tooth. And I can't even wait to, to, to really unpack what that means. And so I am looking forward to a conversation with Tracy Grove today. And uh, Tracy Grove is an executive coach. She's a speaker. She's an author, all of uh, pure symmetry. Uh, she is, and I know we're going to talk about this in a little bit, uh, is just finishing up and will be soon releasing a book that we're going to get into. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to a conversation with you today, Tracy. So thank you so much for some time today on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it. Oh, and I know we just talked about this offline, but already I'm just, I can't wait for everyone to hear your accent. <laughs> Well, I think you might get tired of it by the end of this call, but hopefully not so much. <laughs> I don't think that's possible. I don't know. There, I, I guess we we all uh, we all have different things like we 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 desire or whatever. And there's just something so cool about a really cool accent. I know there's accents that are not great, and <laughs> and there's other ones that just sound so cool. And so I just think that yours just sounds really cool. And so why don't you tell us where that accent comes from? <laughs> Well, thank you, first of all. Originally, um, I was born and raised in South Africa. Um, my husband and I lived there pretty much all of our lives. And then we moved to the UK and lived about 40 miles west, southwest of London in Reading for about six and a half years. And so that was the beginning of the muddling of my accent. And since then, we've moved on to Seattle and we've been here ooh, just on 14 years now. So I'm still working on my American accent so far, not so successfully, but I'm, I continue to try. <laughs> That's good. And so you said you reside now in the Seattle area. I do. Yes. Yeah, so you enjoy a lot of rain. Oh my goodness. I have webbed feet right now. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Never seen so much rain in my life. It's crazy. But you know, coming from South Africa with droughts and really, really tough, harsh, dry weather a lot of the year, um, I never complain about the rain. I, I, I appreciate the rain. It's life-giving. So I can't complain too much, although a little more sunshine would be good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. You know, it's funny. I spent uh, uh, two weeks, uh, uh, one week at one point and one week at another point uh, up in the Seattle area. And, um, the first time I was there, it was in like, I think August and it was beautiful, sunny the whole time. And so they said that I brought the, uh, the Southern California sun with me. <laughs> and then the second time I was there was in January, which right, that's the middle of the winter oh, and yeah. it snowed one day. And other than that, it was beautiful too. And so I was like, I don't know. I think you Seattle people are crazy. I think it's actually pretty <laughs> nice up here. <laughs> well, there is a syndrome here. I've realized in Seattle that we completely have amnesia about winter when we have a summer because our summers are truly spectacular. There's no better summer than in the Pacific Northwest. It's beautiful. Yeah. So I think we selectively forget the fact that we have to go through, I don't know, six to eight months of winter to get there. But we, we certainly do enjoy the summertime. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right. So let's dig in a little bit. I, I'm, uh, I'm interested in asking you um, quite a few questions or, mm -hmm. or getting into some conversation with you. Uh, we met, by the way, uh, by way of both uh, being in the Forbes Coaches Council. And so uh, mm -hmm. I, I would actually like to unpack that a little bit with you, uh, if we can, at some point to learn a little bit more about how that has been a positive contribution to you as a coach and maybe to the community that's around you. Uh, but why don't you just start by just giving us a little bit of an idea of uh, who who you say you are and, and, and what you do on a on a day to day basis? Sure. So um, I think of myself as an observer. Um, you know, if you if you want the job description, it's it's around high performance executive coaching. Um, but I'm really focusing on helping leaders to become more effective. But by doing so to become more authentic and more vulnerable. So really, if you want to boil it down, I help leaders to be brave. 
Um, mm. And in doing so, they can actually create these organizations that are brave and they become resilient organizations because we're all running around in this incredibly rapidly changing environment. So how do we help them to be adaptable to that? So that's really what I do. Um, as to who I am, I think I'm just, I'm essentially a curious person. I love I find people fascinating. Um, I love learning from them. I love observing them. I love helping them to get those aha moments. So that's really what what gets me out of bed in the morning. Yeah. So what I mean, have you always been a curious person from birth? I mean, was that something that was just kind of in your nature? At what point did you start feeling like this was a, a career that you wanted to pursue? It's interesting. I've always been curious and I'm, I'm an avid reader and I, I'm, I'm always looking to learn and to, to grow in that way. I think I get um, lethargy and lack of movement is is very frustrating to me. So I'm, I'm, my husband would, would laugh. Uh, I always have three or four books next to my bed and I'm reading, <laughs> you know, them simultaneously kind of thing. But just because I love to learn and, I, and I'm curious, but I'm curious in such a way that I like to just take little bites out of things as I go along. And I've always been that way. Um, and I think it was it was basically once I moved to the U.S. that I started to see this level of pain in organizations and just the level of stress and anxiety that's becoming increasingly an issue in the workplace and outside of the workplace. You know, you've got these competitive marketplaces, you've got longer working hours, you've got these higher performance expectations that are contributing to a much more stressful work environment for people. And the news at home really isn't any better. If you think about the nature of technology, we're always on. We're always mm-hmm. connected, and this is blurring the boundaries between our work lives and our personal lives. And there used to be a natural buffer between them, and we've taken that buffer away, and it's costing us our health. And so this spurred me to start thinking about how I could help people to put the buffer back in a way that they can actually deal with the environment. We, we can't necessarily change the environment for you know for uh, to go back to where we were, for example, but we can shift our response to it. And so that that curiosity around resilience is really what spurred me to shift from the corporate space into becoming a coach and doing what I do because I wanted to find a new approach to leadership that would help their client, my clients to build this muscle of resilience. Mm. Um, because I think without it, we just don't perform well and we start to just um, almost, almost just disintegrate, which is such a shame. I've seen so many people almost overshadowed by the environment that they're in and they start to become transparent in some ways. They lose their color and their Mm. vibrancy. And I've seen them step out of those environments or find a way to thrive in spite of an environment um, that is remarkable. And it's interesting. I actually said to one of my, my friends who did this, I said, it's interesting because now you're full color again. I can see you in color. And it's actually an interesting thing for me to observe in my clients. And I think that's what I was looking for. I was looking to bring the color back for people who are struggling with a demanding environment. Hmm. Man, I, I love that illustration of color, too, because I, I can just see it so well, right? Just mm-hmm. it, it makes so much sense as you say it. Mm-hmm. So let me rewind back to a word that I picked up on that uh, I, I'm interested to get a little bit of, of your take on how people see it. So you talked about resiliency, right? Yes. And I think a lot of times when people hear that, particularly with the idea of performance in an environment, they think of resiliency as the ability to to kind of to deal with and fight through a lot of the, the struggle and uh, the challenge and obstacles that are around them. Yes. And uh, and so as you and I, I probably know the answer to this, but I really want to hear kind of how you see this. So when you approach an organization or some leadership, some leaders within an organization and you start talking about things like that, mm-hmm. how much of that is helping them to change the environment uh, that that the controllable environment and how much of that is helping them to change themselves or to grow themselves? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. It's it's a mix of the two. And I'd say it's probably 
you know, 60, 40, probably 60% themselves, because really we're all in control of our response to the environment and, you know, mm-hmm. in, in response to things that we cannot control ourselves. The 40% comes from them actually shifting their own perspective and their own view on the world and their own approach to how they deal with those conflicts, those interpersonal issues, those day-to-day stressors, how they deal with all of that, this shifts the environment because they, they build it into a culture. And so if they, if they can build this culture of being willing to make mistakes of tolerating failure and learning from it, of learning how to communicate in a way that takes people along on the journey versus just, you know, shuts them down and of holding people accountable for growing, but also being kind enough to hold that space for them in a way that encourages and empowers them to do so. That shifts the environment, but it definitely takes the individuals and the leaders within those environments at every level, shifting their own response to it first, because you can't do it the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yep, Ab- absolutely. Uh, and and I, I really, uh, I really appreciate when you talk about uh, the, uh, you know, the accountability while yeah. still, uh, you know, kind of giving them permission, or you know, uh, I would say uh, my word often is like extending some grace <laughs> in the midst yes. of that. And yes. so, do you find that becomes a challenge to to walk that fine line at times with people? It can be. It depends on the personalities. You know, everybody's different, and and everyone's carrying something, and we often just don't know what's going on, you know, under the covers for folks. But yeah, it's it it definitely can be a fine line. I think helping them to understand that in order to overcome challenges, they have to be able to be willing um, to be humble. And that takes a level of vulnerability, which for a lot of leaders is very, very scary. Ironically, um, the fear yeah. of the fear of um, humility is what stops them from being vulnerable. But the vulnerability of knowing that they they don't have to know all the answers, but they can ask for help, um, and if they can accept that help with grace then they become more trusted, they become more respected. And ultimately, people don't see them as weaker in any way, shape or form. So I think the biggest thing for a lot of leaders is this notion of, I have to have all the answers, I have to always be right, and I never have to ask for help. And I think yeah. if we can help them break down those myths, because the the irony is that the leaders who are seen as humble, who are seen as accepting their mistakes with grace, and who are tolerant of mistakes in others, and move forward together, then ultimately become trusted entities in the organization, and are seen as actually much more powerful as leaders. Yeah, you know, that that's such an interesting point that you bring up. And I think that um, it, it's... I guess everything in hindsight is, is so much easier to, sure. to judge and to see clearly. But yeah. I don't think many people would argue that point that, um, sure. you know, that those that are humble, that the leaders that are gracious, um, that they are they are far superior leaders in in every way, shape or form or in right. just about every way, shape or form. Right. There's some outliers in there, but it's not always sure. the case. And yet that becomes one of the single biggest challenges. I mean, even even convincing a high performer or a leader mm-hmm. to uh, that or convincing them that they are not as humble as they should be or think they are like even <laughs> that alone is such a challenge, right? It is because a lot of it is around self-awareness and so helping build that self-awareness and often it comes down to feedback from their peers and their colleagues, what they're hearing. Um, but that's difficult to hear for a lot of people. So they have to be able to put aside the ego for a, a nanosecond to be able to be open to that feedback um, and ask, ask for the feedback. But by asking for it, they actually have to mean that they want it. They don't have to just ask for it, hoping that they're going to hear what they want to hear. And that's where, where the challenge is for a lot of leaders. Um, and so for, for some of them, some some leaders just aren't ready for that conversation. Um, some leaders are desperately in need of it, but can't see it necessarily. You know, they always say that acknowledgement of the problem is is half the problem solved. Yeah. Uh, so they they have to be they have to have a level of self awareness that helps them to see clearly the, the fact that they need to be able to to shift their their interactions and their style. And for a lot of them, they do see it clearly. But it's a habit. A lot of it is that whole, you know, that 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 little inner know-it-all that's inside each of our heads that says, well, 
you're a fraud. They're going to find out that you're just not worthy of being in this position. And that voice makes people become come across as very arrogant and, uh, you know, super confident and nothing much to back it up. The difficulty is by doing that, they shut down their ability to be open to feedback and to actually say, wait, I don't know. Can you help me? If they can do that, then not only does it help their confidence, but it helps them to actually overcome the challenges day to day that are going to put them in that space of being self-defensive and and not being willing to be wrong. So the more they practice it, even if it feels fake at first and it feels like it's uncomfortable, it can help them to break out of that paralysis that comes from the fear of actually being wrong or not being self-aware. Hmm. Okay, so... Uh, I, I I heard a lot that could be uh, uh, brought down into some some pretty clear advice, but I think that this is something that uh, is very applicable to uh, to people in the workplace that are working for these types of leaders. Yes. And um, you know, there's there's this tension or there's this gap between the leadership and the employees, and mm-hmm. the employees really want to learn and grow, and maybe they really. Uh, love or care for their leader, or maybe they really don't, but, right. um, but they want to be able to approach them and, and address some of these issues even themselves. So if you were to give some kind of some simple advice to, to an employee that really wants to be able to approach their leader in this manner, what are some things that you would advise them to do um, that would help to not just get them railroaded right back out the door? Right. Um, depending on the leader, I would say approach it with, um, kindness. So you don't want to back the leader into a corner. You want to really uh, help them understand that you are there to support them, that you respect them, that you feel that they would be helping and it would be valuable for you to be able to have those conversations at a different level with them and asking. I think one of the the things that um, a lot of um, teams and employees struggle with is this fear of actually asking for what they need. And so Mm. There is a risk associated with it, of course. If you have a leader who's, you know, just a jerk and is pretty much dysfunctional, it's ultimately not going to help the employee by saying, I really need you to be vulnerable and I need you to be open to feedback and I need you to help me to grow in certain ways. But if you have a good relationship with a leader, I think being being willing to ask for that and being explicit about what you're asking for and what the value of that is. So by by enabling that behavior, it will help you to grow. It will help you to contribute more to the organization because you feel that you have something really good to offer and you want to give it to the organization. There's no leader who, who wouldn't want somebody to say, I want to give more to this right. organization. I want to give more of myself. I'm struggling with that and I need your help to do it. Will you help me? Very few leaders would say no to that. Now, they may not know how to help you necessarily, um, but I think if the employee knows what they need to ask for and they know what, they, what they're looking for and they can clearly articulate what that is in terms that does not attack the leader or say, you don't do this, more around what I need to be successful, can you help me? I think then it puts the leader on less of a defensive posture and helps them to see that, you know what, this is, this is somebody who's reaching across the aisle to me and needs my help. It also, you know, I know it sounds strange, but it also in some ways, it flatters them to think that you need their help as an employee and you're asking them because you have respect for their opinion and you have respect for their, um, their approach to leadership. So it's that, it's that looking for a partnership versus looking for instruction. It's also looking for that partnership versus imposing judgment on the leader, which is crucial. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I love uh, that you said um, all of it, but I, I really love the, the part about, you know, you're giving that leader the ability to, to lead, to feel valued. Um, yes. um, Stephen Covey, I'm a big Stephen Covey fan, and so mm-hmm. one of his seven habits is seek first to understand and then be understood. And so part of that, when I when I walk people through that, sometimes I, I try to use that book in, in as mm-hmm. many uh, coaching engagements as I can. And uh, so when I walk people through that, one of the things that I try and help people to, to, to work through there is, is in seeking to understand people. You're, you're not just seeking to understand, you know, a lot of people take that as like, well, I, I want to try and see their perspective uh, when there's a challenge. Mm-hmm. But really, it's seeking 
seeking to understand like, what do they value? Right? Like we don't right. often think of the leader as like, well, they have values and they have hopes and dreams and desires. And so we want to, to seek to understand them before mm-hmm. we just try and bring them our problems, even if we're the employee and they're our, you know, they're our boss or whatever. Absolutely. Well, from the employee's perspective, your values have to be aligned with the values of the organization. And if they aren't aligned, then there's there's an internal conflict that arises. So there's a, there's a key question that employees have to ask themselves every day is, are my values aligned with this organization? Are we congruent? If we are, great. If we're not, why? Is it because I don't see those values being demonstrated by leadership? If so, why so? Is it because they just don't stand for what I stand for? And then the employee has to decide whether they can continue to survive that environment or whether they want to try and change it, which can be an uphill battle, or whether they feel that they might be better off somewhere else. So it's a key question that employees have to ask around values. From the leader's perspective, they have to be very clear about what their values are and what they stand for, both as individuals and as the representatives of the organization. And they have to be very clear around how they demonstrate those, and really, a lot of successful organizations that do this, and um, you think about some of the, you know, I, I know one airline in particular is very focused on values, and they 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 only put people in place who um, have the same values that they do as far as customer service, being friendly, being approachable. Um, and if there's a, if there's a misalignment, then those folks don't don't come into the organization, and they expect their leadership to demonstrate those values consistently. That's the key. It's not about intensity. Uh, Simon Sinek always talks about this. It's not in- intensity. It's about consistency. Uh-huh. So for leadership, the, the key is demonstrating those values and being true to them. And this has to be done all authentically, obviously, but being true to them and demonstrating them consistently all the time, because employees look for that. And if the team doesn't see that in their leader, then there's no faith in that leader and they can they can feel that disconnect. And so it's super important for the leader to know what their values are, to be clear about articulating what those values are, and then backing those values up and living them every day. Yeah, gosh, <clears throat> that was great. I mean, I, I hope that anybody that was listening as an employee of any organization uh, heard that uh, and, and was able to take that away. And, and I think we see that play out. Like, you know, you talk about an airline. I'm going to assume that was Southwest. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I, um, I actually have a friend that works for them. And mm-hmm. and he, I mean, he like bleeds uh, Southwest colors right, and right. that big heart, you know, because mm-hmm. of that. And then we see that on the flip side. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think that, you know, somebody that is consistently making the headlines, both for good and unfortunately bad, is Elon Musk in this area. Right. And, you know, here's somebody that, I have a ton of respect for as an industry leader and an innovator. Like I think the guy is a genius and he's doing a lot of good for industry and um, even for like social good in so many areas. But then we see things like uh, what's happened over the last couple of days and even to I think like two nights ago um, where he is like grinding his employees out at like one o'clock in the morning yep. um, to to do their job and then also warning them basically that if you're not doing your job we're going through another round of layoffs and you could be one of them yes. <laughs> and so it's like you know you are a really good leader in some areas of life you know being again like what I would say industry um, yes. but but you're not a good company leader. And, no. and I think that there can be a, 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 a clear line between those things. And that's okay, too. And I, I think more leaders need to hear that, right? Like, yes. you don't have to be the leader of everything. No, you don't. And that's, and that's why you build a team around you to help support you in those spaces where you just don't want to lead. You know, some, some clients will say, my balance is really important. Uh, the, the antithesis of, of the Elon Musk philosophy, you know, I, I'm not prepared to travel three days out of four days of the week because I want to be with my family. And that's important to them. That's a value. So, you know, living those values and, you know, Elon Musk obviously has an incredible work ethic. I respect that, but that's his personal choice Um, by, by, and, and, you know, I guess we have to say in fairness to him that he's being very clear about what he values. Yeah. Um, But, you know, it's, it, it creates this, this um, disconnect with, with the employees who are feeling completely just wrung out and burnt out and, and frankly, unappreciated. And that Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily make him a leader that others want to follow. They may want to follow him for a short period of time because he's a thought leader, because he's innovative, because he's a brilliant man. But ultimately, you want to follow a leader because they lead from the heart. 
And if he cannot do that, then he will lose people around him who potentially could be incredibly valuable and helpful to him in the long run. But that's ultimately the choice he has to make. Yes. Okay. So that was another gem. I, I always try and like uh, make sure that these are reiterated and, you know, people want to follow leader, uh, a, a leader when they're, you know, when they're leading from the heart. I, I, mm-hmm. I think that that is so important for leaders to hear because, yes. um, again, like I've worked for uh, leaders in the past that have been geniuses in certain areas mm-hmm. and absolute disasters, um, you know, when it comes to the people side of things. And I've watched great organizations falter uh, because of that, right? It's like you have all these great things in place, but but your leader is not putting um, their heart in the right place. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you have the wrong leader in the place that, you know, the person leading with the heart should be in, right? Absolutely. And, you know, this there's this notion of this fear-driven um, culture in a lot of organizations. And I've seen it. I've been a victim of it. I've, you know, frankly wrote my master's thesis based on an organization that I had experienced. Um, and it's, it's, it's sad because you find good people who are being destroyed by an environment. And ultimately, that kind of behavior, the fear-based and fear-driven leadership makes good friends and colleagues start to turn on each other because in order to survive the environment and to please a leader who is fear-based and who's inflicting this on them, they change their behaviors and they start blaming others. They start scapegoating in order to survive. And it's 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 almost as, as though they just exist in the organization and they stop producing and they start, you know, it's where you get the internal politics, you get the hierarchies coming, you get a lot of, when, a, when there's a lack of leadership, that's when you get politics in an organization. Because if everyone's aligned behind the leader who's extolling the right values, who's made it very clear what the plan is, they can see the road ahead, and everyone feels good about being there, there's no room for politics or hierarchies. But a fear-based leader basically instills those because it's a way of controlling people. Because you keep them divided, they're much easier to control. When people are united behind a leader with a single unifying force, they're almost unstoppable. Hmm. Hear that, leaders. If you want to be unstoppable, just listen to Tracy's advice (laughs) and maybe hire her to come into your organization. There is that Uh, too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, um, so I'm sure that you shared a a lot of the answer to the question that I'm going to ask you next, but, uh, but I want to get to this and I want to make sure we have some time. So one of the things that you shared, um, in your bio with me and also the title of your new book is Taming the Sabertooth. Yes. And that alone is just like so catchy. And I know you did not, you know, <laughs> you didn't do all that just because it was catchy. So maybe explain for us a little bit uh, what, th- what that means. And mm-hmm. then, um, and then, then maybe why, why you decided to use that title uh, in presentations and yeah. in book title and, and probably in branding overall. Right, right. So, um, okay, in full disclosure, it is catchy, and that's part of the reason I chose it. But um, <laughs> the, not your the, fault. It's just catchy. <laughs> the, the the real reason is, you know, when I when I'm working with clients, especially around resilience and you know building this vulnerability muscle of theirs, um, I often tell the story of you know when we were running around in loincloths, um, we 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 had a. a, a a built-in mechanism which helped us be um, able to survive. It was a self-preservation mechanism, which was this whole notion of the fight, um, flight, freeze mechanism. And so all my work is around how to help people stop doing that because we do that now, today, even when our world has evolved, our saber-tooth has changed. So in the good old days, the saber-tooth was chasing around. We had to choose, right? We either hide behind a rock, attempt to look invisible, We either fight it out with a saber tooth, unlikely we'd win that battle, or we run like crazy in the opposite direction. Those were the three choices that we had in order to survive. What's interesting is even though the world has changed and we no longer get chased down the, you know, down the the, the mountain by something with very large claws and very sharp teeth, that saber tooth has evolved. So essentially, it's that email from the boss that is, you know, make, makes your palms start to sweat and makes your heart race. It's that difficult client. It's that it's that tough conversation with your teenager because they're acting out. It's the fight with the spouse. It's just the day-to-day stuff 
that gets our body responding in the same way it did when we were running around in caves. So the interesting thing is even though the saber tooth has evolved and become something different and looks different, our body hasn't evolved. Our brains haven't evolved. We respond in exactly the same way that we did back then when we were all, you know, chasing each other with sticks. So hmm. what, what, what my whole premise is, we have to learn to tame the saber tooth. And the only way that we can actually do that, because that email is not going anywhere anytime soon. The boss is always going to be the boss. You're always going to have difficult conversations with people. You're always going to have people cutting you off in the traffic. Things are going to happen, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. And the world is changing so quickly that more and more of these stresses are in uh, just a daily part of our lives. So how do we cope with it in a way that's different? How do we stop, you know, hiding behind a rock or, or, you know, metaphorically, how do we, you know, stop running from something? How do we, you know, stop avoiding the conversations? And by doing that, we build resilience in order to help us face the saber tooth. And if we can do that, then I think we realize that it's not as bad as we think it is. And often if we have those tools and those skills in our tool toolkit, to help us challenge our assumptions, to not listen to that crazy little voice in our heads that's always got something nasty to say about us, mm. um, to really think about how are we stereotyping other people, how are we in interacting with other people, how are we helping grow our teams, how are we helping to, to, to help other people in our societies, how are we building a sense of community. All of those things take resilience because in the face of the saber tooth, it's not easy to stand and, and hold your ground. But I think resilience can help us do so. And so that's what all of the the, the background to the taming of the saber tooth is about. Because my, my attitude is if you can tame it and continue to tame it, it becomes a kitten. And you realize mm. that it's not as bad as it is as it seems, um, but it takes practice. It takes persistence and it takes constant re reinforcement of these principles, of these ways of thinking to be able to build that resilience. It's not something you just switch on and switch off and go, okay, well, I'm just going to, I'm resilient now. I've done a, you know, an hour long course. I've got this. Um, and so the book is really intended to help people see from a leadership perspective, how they can do this on a day-to-day -day basis with really just day-to-day -day easy examples of stuff that I've seen, that I've experienced, that others have shared with me around their experience in trying to be the best possible leaders they can be. And then the other piece around it is how to nurture your recovery from stress. So for a lot of us who are in the helping profession, and I think of most of us as being in a helping profession of one way or another, whether you're serving clients, whether you're serving customers, whether you're serving patients, whether you're just serving your families and your friends, really by nurturing our own recovery from stress and helping to shore up our reserves, both emotionally, physically, and intellectually, we can then become stronger and more able to actually deal with the day-to-day -day without, I guess, breaking down. Um, and it takes things like sleeping well, eating well, moving well, um, in addition to things like thinking well, behaving well. There's all these, these aspects to resilience that are all-encompassing, if you think about it from, a, from a, being a human perspective. Um, and so the, the book and the, the workshops are all intended to help people build that toolkit and find the things that work for them so that when they can, when they're faced with something in the moment, they can go, ah, oh, I can deal with this in a different way. I can think about this differently. It's about shifting perspective. So, uh, so if I feel like I am just, you know, constantly running, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I mean, is, is there something, um, uh, simple, practical that you would first recommend, um, uh, to me to, to, uh, I don't know whether it's, I even identify that or mm -hmm. stop it from happening. Like, are there some simple practical takeaways, uh, mm -hmm. that you would be willing to share? Sure. So there's a couple of things that I that I, I ask a lot of my clients to do because they're all running. You know, it's the, the pace is crazy. So a couple of things. Um, one is to waste time well. So I ask them to intentionally take five minutes multiple times through the day to just sit. 
Hmm. Step away from the computer, step away from whatever you're doing and that, that all those racing thoughts and just sit. And it's a, you could think of it as a mini meditation, but a lot of people have a visceral reaction to the word meditate. It feels very, hmm. uh, you know, unwieldy and, and Zen-like and weird and woo-woo. So I would say, you know, <laughs> just take a few minutes to just be, sit in a comfy chair you know, maybe cradle a nice warm drink in your hand, maybe a nice cup of hot chocolate or tea, something that's a treat for you, and just sit and be and just be quiet and breathe for a few minutes. It's remarkable how it can just reset your focus and just give you an opportunity to clear your head a little bit. So taking time out and actually physically separating yourself from the, I guess, the, the, the treadmill that you're on um, can be very, very helpful. And then the other thing is really just prioritizing your time when you're trying to get a lot done. Prioritize your time based on your energy levels. So when you're most productive, if you say you're a morning person and you're most productive in the morning, focus your time then on doing the things that are most difficult and are most challenging so that you can get them out of the way. Because one of the things I found with a lot of my clients that's the most challenging for them is they have a long list of stuff that they have to do. And they get it to the end of the day and they feel like they've, they've picked it up and they've put it down multiple times and they haven't really achieved anything. So package it up and then focus your energy for the time when you can do certain things that need a lot of cognitive load, for example. Mm-hmm. Focus your energy on those times um, to do the stuff that's most important to you. And then, you know, all the other noise that's out there in the system, a lot of people get distracted by the emails and all of that kind of thing. Be intentional choose your distractions. So focus on the things that mean the most to you and are most important and are going to make a difference in five years. Everything else is noise in the system. So then you can focus those those times for the times when you, you know, you're not feeling you're most productive, but you just need to clear some email. So it's, it's about being intentional about how you're spending your energy and where you're putting your energy. Does that help? Mm. Oh, that was fantastic. Now somebody better really go out and buy the book so they can expand on all of those things so so well. Okay, and so you uh, obviously you're you're giving workshops on these things uh, yes. uh, and uh, uh, presentations. Uh, mm-hmm. I've said it multiple times. So you uh, decided to take on the wild and crazy task of writing a book. And so <laughs> uh, be- before we get to when. Uh, why, why, why was it important to you to put this down on paper? I mean, that's a big Mm -hmm. commitment of time, effort, energy, money. Uh, so, uh, so why, why did you feel like it was necessary for you to, to put this all to paper like this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question. Um, you know, I always wanted to write the book, um, because of all these things that I'd learned from all my clients. Um, I, I wanted to write it for a long time and it was on post-it notes for the, for the longest time It's kind of ridiculous. Um, (laughs) but I really, I really wanted to, to, you know, help, help folks understand that there are ways that they can deal with their environment. I've had the opportunity to learn from leaders from all over the world, working on three continents over, you know, a couple of decades. Um, I really wanted to take what I, the lessons learned through those relationships with colleagues and clients, friends, family, um, that have both challenged and inspired me over the years and share those lessons with others because I was given the gift of resilience and I have learned to use that muscle myself and I continue to learn to use that muscle. I wanted to help others to be able to, to do the same, to accelerate their performance. And so I really wanted to see how we could take those lessons and help people who are struggling and who are feeling the pain of dealing with ambiguity and change and adversity um, to help them to deal with it with courage and grace so that they could actually do so and feel more optimistic about every aspect of their lives. So that's really what I was looking for. I wanted to see if I could help um, people bounce back, not necessarily from trauma because they see resilience in a lot of cases when you see the definition of it, it's about you know, coming back from some kind of trauma or um, adversity. Mm -hmm. Um, Trauma is a different thing for every person. Some people see trauma in in different areas to other folks. For me, really, it's about how do we make sure that people who don't necessarily have to deal with trauma, but are just dealing with change and are dealing with challenges of everyday life, um, you know, how, how can we help them deal with fear, disappointment, heartache, but equally, how can we help them embrace joy, optimism and happiness? And by doing that, um, helping them to build this more optimistic viewpoint and this outlook, it becomes a buffer for them. 
when times do get tough. Um, so basically shifting our response to the environment. And that's really why I, built, I, I wrote the book is really how can I reach more people um, and help them to see that this is something that anyone can build. Everyone can build this skill. It's not something that some are just more resilient than others naturally. Um, it's something that we can all learn to build and we can all um, shore up our reserves on and nurture our recovery from stress. You know, you said something about, I don't know, 45 seconds ago that uh, was really, um, I don't know, a light bulb kind of clicked on for me. Uh, so you said, you know, kind of the, the idea of trauma and, mm-hmm. um, you know, we kind of all know how to deal with that. I'm, I'm putting some words into your mouth, but like, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's like when, when something really big happens around us, um, we, um, we typically know that that that's a time that we've got to, uh, we do have to deal with it, right? We've got to yes. tighten up our bootstraps. We've got to build a community of people around us. We've got to go ask for help. I mean, I personally, uh, just about a year and a half ago, went through an extremely traumatic experience. I was in the mm. middle of a, a mass shooting and one of mm. a, my dear friends was killed in the process. Mm. And, um, and and it was brutal, right? I mean, a right. brutal experience yeah. that, you know, to this day, you know, I still like just, you know, I still deal with. Of and course. yet, um, it, it, and it was devastating in a way that nothing else I, I hope mm. will ever be, but mm. it, I, I knew that I had to, to fight against those moments of, uh, of just deep, dark hurt and struggle. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and I, I was putting up the right, um, barriers and protections and, and reaching out to people. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. Like in, in that moment, or in those moments, like it was almost obvious uh, on how to deal with it, even though it was still, again, a challenge. But ever since then, and and every day leading up to that, it's these little small things that seem to sometimes, even me, like they numb you and you don't even know what to do with it, right? And it could be as simple as, it's funny, like when you said, it could be as simple as getting an email from your boss or maybe a client and you're Mm -hmm. afraid to open it because of what it may say, or you do read it and you're not sure to how interpret it and, and you just freak out and, and we don't know what to do with ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. wild how it's like the small thing becomes the really big thing because we don't know, we haven't put the right tools, I don't think in place to, to deal with that stuff that happen all the time. Absolutely. And you know, in fairness to humans everywhere, where um, this is how we were conditioned and how we've been created. You know, this this notion of the the amygdala, or what what I think they call it, the limbic brain, and sometimes the, even the lizard brain, because it's the most um, prehistoric part of our brain. It's the original part of our brain, right in the center of our brains. Um, and we think of this. This is this is the the amygdala, which is responsible for fear conditioning. And the interesting thing about the amygdala is that it activates this fight, flight, freeze response. Whenever we sense a threat, any threat, it can literally be somebody cutting you off in traffic. Your amygdala kicks on. It immediately shuts down the thinking brain, which is your prefrontal cortex, and you start to curse and yell, and maybe you, you know, make some <laughs> kind of gesture, you know, to, to the other lead. Maybe you get on the horn. Who, who knows? You know, this this is how road rage happens, um, because the amygdala essentially has been hijacked. Daniel Goldman actually coined this term amygdala hijack um, in his book Emotional Intelligence. And really, it's about the fact that the emotional response takes over for us because we feel the emotion way before we even know that we felt the emotion. Our thinking brain only kicks in afterwards. And that's the brain that's actually all about the memory planning reasoning, right? So it's about the, okay, so I shouldn't get on the horn and honk at this person because who knows, he might be, you know, a 300 pound wrestler and he's going to get out of the car and, you know, smack me. (laughs) Um, Maybe it's, maybe it's not a smart idea. So, but all of that only happens you know, a couple of seconds after the amygdala is gone, I'm going to kill that guy. So, you know, it's, it's how do we, how do we deal with that? Because from an evolutionary perspective, that's not changing anytime soon. And it's not changing because it's a survival mechanism. Because, yeah. you know, in your case, when you went through that traumatic experience, the amygdala kicks in because it's trying to, it's trying to save your life. So it's, it's how we, how we help the rest of our brain to come to the party 
and say, okay, I'm feeling this this fear, I'm feeling this anxiety, that's okay. This, this, is, this isn't about not feeling those emotions because they're completely valid emotions. It's really about what you do with them and where do you take them from there and not getting sinking into this, as you say, this really deep black hole um, that you can't necessarily step out of. And so resilience helps us to do that by giving us tools that help us move through that space. Um, and, you know, think of it as, as, as a, a transition curve. How do you move through the feelings of anxiety, fear, depression, maybe even just apathy in some cases, mm-hmm. all the way through change to something that then lets us see there's a new beginning and there's new possibilities and seeing the opportunity that that presents to us. And it does take time. And for some people, it's, it's quicker than for others. And that's okay. Everyone has their own journey. But I think giving people the tools to help them facilitate that journey is really crucial. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Not having the tools in place can be such a disaster. And I think mm-hmm. that we too often, we, we don't think about it until we need them. And by the time right. we need them, it's too late. <laughs> right. And you know, it's, and that's why I say it takes persistence and practice, because it's very hard when you're in the moment, when your amygdala is screaming and saying, stop this, it's, it's a problem, I don't like this, I, I really want to run away. Um, it's really hard to then be able to to dial that down. Um, But you can train your brain to do that in a way that helps you to be more of a response than a react. Um, And so it's, it's, it takes a lot of practice. It takes, and you know, it's, I think the key as well that I really want people to to walk away with from the workshops, from the book. And I, I say this to my clients, it's not about perfection. It's never going to be perfect. We're only human. Be kind to yourself. You have to be gentle with yourself and know that sometimes you're going to fall off that wagon. Occasionally, it might even roll over you. That's okay. <laughs> Dust yourself off. Get back on. Try again. Um, and only by keep by trying and consistently doing it over and over will it get better and will it be easier to instinctively switch some switch on that that reaction or at least buffer your reaction to something in the moment. Hmm. Okay, so if somebody's just absolutely loved everything that you've said today, which uh, <laughs> I'm a fan uh, and <laughs> just uh, definitely appreciated it. So when are we going to be able to get our hands on Taming Our Own Sabertooth? <laughs> the book should be available for pre-order at the end of February and okay. will be on shelves, if all goes well, towards the end of March. I made a deal with my publisher. My birthday is March 28th. And so the deal was that it would be out there in print by my birthday. So wait a minute. You, you just, you just, you know, the, the beauty of technology is every once in a while we get a, a little bit of a dropout. And so you said your birthday is when? March 28th. And my birthday is March 28th. You're kidding. We didn't <laughs> know this until right now. This wasn't even pre-planned. <laughs> you see, Aries, good people. <laughs> that was so good. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so uh, in in the podcasting world, uh, we typically are, are recording ahead of when we're actually going to uh, publish a, an episode. And so uh, by the time this episode goes live, uh, pre-order will have already happened. So um, uh, we will have promoted this. Uh, to make sure that people are very well aware of what's going on. But by the time you that are listening today are listening, uh, this book should be available for you to order and you will be uh, in great anticipation of receipt on Tracy and my birthday. What a great birthday present that would (laughs) be. Isn't it? It's a fantastic birthday. And what a great birthday present to me to be able to give this gift to to as many people out there as I hope will buy the book and just to mention as well what I've what I also have is we you know one of the things about practice and persistence and continuing to to hone this skill um, the book actually comes with a companion app a mobile app uh, that enables um, you to go deeper in some of the concepts, reminders, new insights, new um, ideas, and you know things things that will hopefully will help keep it top of mind. Um, so you basically will have a coach in your pocket um, that you can sign up for. It's a free app um, that will hopefully help to bring some of these concepts to life and help you feel a little more connected with it on a day-to-day basis. That that's fantastic. I, you know, I, I 
uh, I'm always hesitant to ask people about their books only because mm -hmm. I think that we live in a day and age, particularly uh, when you are a speaker or a coach or a consultant. Mm -hmm. uh, most people are writing books uh, because they feel like, kind of like that's their business card right. and or they're using it to promote, you know, a, a speaking gig. Sure. And yet, I mean, uh, obviously, again, you know, as we've had conversation uh, today and people are listening, they're going to hear that this just overall is more for you than just a, a, a get rich quick scheme. Yes. Um, but the fact that you've gone to the extent of creating an app so people can continually and regularly apply these things just demonstrates how deeply invested into people you are. And so I really appreciate that, that you've gone to that length, because I think that it's necessary that, you know, we continue to help people connect the dots versus just give them a whole bunch of ideas and then almost make a bigger mess than when they started. Right. And I think one of the things that is challenging is there are a lot of concepts, ideas, skills, and practices. So one of the things that I, I always say is choose what works for you. Pick a couple of things. Just try them on. See what works. Some, some, some things may not work for everybody. Some things will work differently for some than for others. That's okay. We're all different. Everybody needs something different. This isn't a, about a cookie cutter approach. I think it's really about what's going to help you to move through your life in a way that makes you feel more joy and what's going to help you to go to work every day and feel good about it and feel that when you come home every day, you feel great about what you've given and that you've given everything that you've got and you haven't phoned it in because you feel really good about what you brought to the table. Um, it's, you know, it's really about, you know, loving what you do so that you can give the best of yourself to it every day. And I'm hopeful that the book um, and of course the, 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 the workshops and et cetera can help everybody to find out what that is for them because it's mm. different for everybody. Okay. That, that, that's just such a great place to wrap. I, I really want to leave everybody with that idea, which I try to preach as often as I can, and you've just such done such a wonderful job of articulating over the course of you know 45 minutes, but really in the end there, and it is that idea of you know we do we want to love our life, we want to love the mm -hmm. the job that we have, the the yep. profession, the career, the relationship, uh, and and it is unique to everybody, but that but you know, so, so it's more about being willing to kind of step out and, and step into what's before us and to give it everything we have yes. and, and then put the right tools in place along the way. So, I mean, I just, I appreciate so much of everything you've shared, Tracy. I feel like, um, how, how could there be more? And yet I know that there's no way that you could have shared everything in 45 minutes. So there's just so <laughs> much more that it intrigues me. I, I can't wait to get a copy of the book because oh, uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to, not just reading it because of our conversation, but because there's a lot of things in in what we've talked about that I know I can apply to my own life that will make me a better husband, father, business owner, mm -hmm. community member. I just think that there's just so much there. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. And I really look forward to hearing what you think. Um, I'd love to know if it's made a difference for you. Um, as I said, if I can just make a difference for one person, I consider that a success. So I hope that you enjoy it. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that I will, but I will make sure to provide feedback if, <laughs> regardless. Um, and, and for everybody listening, as I do always, I'm going to make sure to put contact information information to Tracy in the show notes so you can feel free to reach out to her directly. We're going to put a link in there so you can go order the book uh, online yourself. And then whether that's reaching back out to Tracy or out to myself, I would love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Uh, I, I appreciate your feedback. It's always helpful to continue to bring great guests on, to ask the right questions, to have good conversations. Um, my opinion counts, but it only counts as much as I care about it. And so I want to make sure that you are heard too. And so I hope that you were blessed by what was shared today because there was just a lot here, whether you're a, a leader or an employee working at home or working in an office, uh, there's just there's just a lot to be had. And, uh, and I really hope that through it all, you are going to end up taming your own saber tooth. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Tracy. Take care and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. All right, everybody, that wraps up another episode of the Excellence Mindset Podcast. Uh, as I've shared throughout the episode today, I really appreciate what somebody like Tracy Grove has to share, and I'm confident that you will too. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Look forward to your feedback. And until next time, get out there, give it your best, and live a life of excellence.
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Excellence Mindset with Ryan James Miller. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe. And for more great content and to stay up to date, visit ryanjamesmiller.com. We'll catch you next time.